Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. It's called dry testing. I think the concept in marketing of trying to figure out how to create a product without essentially doing as little work as possible so you can learn about what resonates and what doesn't resonate is the best way to go. You don't want to put a ton of work into something and then only do the marketing afterwards. Do the marketing beforehand and that way you'll know what actually works. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 37. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with David Siegel. David Siegel is the former CEO of Avestopedia, the largest finance and investing education site, which currently reaches over 30 million monthly unique visitors. That is super impressive. Prior to that, he served as president of Seeking Alpha, a crowdsourced investment research business with over 4 million registered users. There, he oversaw all U.S.-based functions, sales, marketing, product, and business development. Under his leadership, digital media sales grew by 30% and subscription sales by over 100%. David, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Awesome to be here. Number 37, my lucky number. What do you know? Oh, really? Good. I actually, yeah, I've been thinking about that. I got three and seven were actually my favorite numbers growing up. So I put them together nicely for you. I'm so glad you're with us. Awesome. So you've had tons of success in a lot of areas, and I want to be able to unpack that a little bit with you because Lead to Succeed Nation, frankly, myself and my own personal interests and all, I'm like beyond excited that we're talking today because I know I'm going to learn so much uh, from our conversation. But I think anyone who is in my work, coaching, or business, B2B, B2C, it doesn't matter. Marketing and sales are so important. So You've succeeded in many ways in these areas. Give us some of your tips, please. Some of the things that you have done, some of the uh, successes you've experienced, and uh, some practical tips that we could, you know, all uh, learn and benefit from. Sounds great. Okay, so first, I would say that the um, succeeding in marketing, the skill set needed for marketing, and the skill set needed in selling are two very, very different skill sets. Good. We'll separate those out because. Marketers today, especially digital marketing, is all about, in my mind, it's about analytics. Marketing maybe 20 or 30 years ago was about big creative ideas, um, that, you know, and, and, and that type of an individual. Today, the best marketers are hyper-analytical. They're very numbers-driven. They understand the importance of testing um, and optimizing, and especially in the digital world, that's how you succeed in marketing. So... Um, the way to success in marketing is being incredibly analytical. So I'll give you a story about um, something that we did at Investopedia that I'm pretty proud of. Okay. Um, Investopedia was always a free site. We decided to launch a, a way to charge our users for, um, for content that we created. Um, what we decided to do is we created something called Investopedia Academy. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to Udemy or Udacity where you take these self-paced courses. Now, we didn't know what courses we should create. Should we create courses on retirement? Should we create courses on, on, um, on intro to investing? We should create courses on trading. Mm-hmm. What we decided to do in our course selection is pretend that we had 50 courses on our site. And we actually created 50 separate calls to action on our site 
50 separate landing pages on our site. And we said, welcome to our retirement course. Welcome to our intro to trading course. Welcome to this course, to that course. And we didn't just ask people. We saw what really resonated with people. We saw the clicks that people were clicking on uh-huh. to actually you know, want to take the course. And when they hit the landing page, we saw how many people were interested in putting their email address in. It basically, it's called dry testing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the concept in, in marketing of trying to figure out how to create a, a product without essentially do, doing as little work as possible so you can learn about what resonates and what doesn't resonate is the best way to go. You don't want to put a ton of work into something and then only do the marketing afterwards. Do the marketing beforehand and that way you'll know what actually work. It's kind of a lean startup type approach um, if you know that book from Eric Rise, which is you know one of my favorite books. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. Yeah, that, I think that's really important because, you know, there's so many different things that people could be offering, especially in the service and educational spaces. And like you said, you don't really know where it's necessarily going to go, who's interested in what, how successful it will be. But if you can find ways to dry test it and really get a feel for what's driving people's interest, where do they want to learn more, where do they want to put in their email addresses and kind of get registered and all that. Yeah, that could be very powerful. And I'm, I'm just curious, even though this is not exactly where you were going with it, um, but I'm sure you've experienced where you kind of, you've, drive te- you've dry tested, you've gone a little bit further, you've started the process, maybe you're not getting the traction that you're looking for. At what point did you find that, you are going to kind of like continue to go with your gut, so to speak, as opposed to maybe cutting back and saying, you know, this isn't really a great idea. It's not working the way we thought it might work, even with our testing, even with our, you know, surveying, interviewing, whatever processes we did where people know, you know, I I just need to cut and move on. Have you ever experienced that? And what are your thoughts? It's the ultimate entrepreneur's question, which is when do you, if one of the best quality traits of an entrepreneur is persistence. Yeah then you think just persist, persist, and it'll be great. But at the same time, we Stay all know in the game. you learn more from failing. Uh-huh. And sometimes you want to fail fast. So how do you reconcile the two things, which is your question? How yeah. do you reconcile being really persistent with also failing fast and iterating? Yeah. Because that's yeah. also what you're supposed to do. So I think the answer is to, um, to iterate and fail fast and not get too wedded to what you your initial conception is. So what my general belief, what we actually do is when we're building a new product or a new business line, we will have a monthly meeting every month where we say, let's question whether or not we should completely turn our product upside down, turn our business upside down. Uh-huh. Because it's too easy to fall into the fallacy around sunk costs, too easy to um, start you know, thinking you put so much into it, how do I, you know, what's it called? Um, something bias, you know, the term. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the bias part, I think we all get, you know, once you get right. invested in something, it's it's, it's difficult. It's hard to pull yourself out. Hard to pull out. So we purposely yeah. put a meeting in the calendar. Uh-huh. Where we say, should we, this is the kill, should we kill our business meeting? Should we iterate meaningfully in our business meeting? And it forces yeah. us to get in the room and to force that conversation Every single month. Yeah, it's kind of funny the way you're describing it. The fail fast is actually the language I was looking for. Uh, So thank you for that. It's I'm like imagining your 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 space and like you've got you know different roles and responsibilities. And one person's like the Grim Reaper over there, whose whose job is to kill anything that doesn't have real you know substance to it. So I'm just wondering how did you 
how, how did you um, task your people? In other words, how did yeah. you create the environment where people would uh, not only be open to conversation and being, you know, being truthful about what they're seeing, but that there would possibly be sort of this balanced dynamic of to push forward or to push back? That yeah. kind of thing. So this may seem obvious, but it does start with having the right people. And the number one character trait in the right people is high integrity, high honesty, the ability to be honest with oneself and not to lie to oneself. Um, that's it. You have to look for people that have high integrity and high honesty and, and, and that are willing to admit failures and, and not failure and also willing to say failures aren't failures. Failures are successes. Nice. And you need to meet with people and interview them and say, tell me about a failure. How do you feel about that failure? And if someone says, I felt horrible, I felt terrible, I let everyone down. No, you maybe did the greatest thing. That was the best thing. So it starts with, if you have the wrong type of mentality and the wrong person, no matter what type of culture you create around that person, it kind of doesn't matter. You have to have that right person that thinks that way. Now, that's one. Once you have the right person, that's not enough. You also have the right goals in place. For example, if your goal is all about revenue growth, revenue growth, revenue growth, and you're really in figure it out stage, but you're not yet in scaling stage, then that's a great way to disenable someone's success to actually fail quickly and to iterate. If the actual focus of the goal is about a conversion percentage-based metric, shall we say, not a volume number-based metric, let's figure out how we're driving percentage of people that, let's say, hit a landing page or hit something and engage with it, then then the goals that you set will then dictate what people focus on. If you set big revenue targets, then that's sure. Good. You have to have the right people, the right goals. And then with the right people and the right goals, you have to have the right culture of debate and disagreement in the room. Mm-hmm. You need to have people in the room that are not shy, that know how to disagree with each other, but also know how to disagree with each other in a very respectful manner. And they're not like, what the hell were you thinking about? <laughs> instead, it's, instead, it's not personalizing. Instead, it's, Help me to understand what you were thinking when you decided that you, this was the approach, that yeah. maybe this was something I wasn't understanding, but to poke holes in it, in it respectfully. If sure. you do those things, you got a great culture and you got to focus on failing fast. Yeah, that's great. And then to add to that, once you have that culture in place and people have said whatever they need to say, then the team coalesces again around the new outcome. It's sort exactly. of like what I'm imagining, like exactly. the five dysfunctions of a team, but, but yes. solved. But solved. Love that book. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. I should just no, went through it again. For all the listeners, there, you, there's a person in the book named Carlos. You don't want to be Carlos because right. Carlos is scared and Carlos is just tries to pacify and make everyone happy. That doesn't help anyone. Yeah, I, I think that's a great book. It's got so much to share. Yeah. And, I, and I loved your response because what I'm hearing here, the beauty of, I, I liked everything you said, truthfully, in terms of the integrity, the goals, as well as the culture. But staying with number two for just a second, the idea that if we begin our process, let's say thinking 30 days out, 60, 90, et cetera, and we say, well, what would we expect to be looking like at this point. And then you measure. So at the first stage, you're less emotionally invested because you haven't done it yet. You know, you're just thinking about it. You're hoping it's going to work. You think it's going to work, but you don't know for sure. So then when you go back at it later, there's less of the subjectivity that could be folded in because you're looking at it from objective benchmarks you created before things got all emotional and whatnot. So I I think staying there, that really helps. It really helps. 
Yeah, great. So take us to the sales side. So I got marketing. I, I understand. Tell me if I got this side that correctly. That's really analytics based. You need to be able to understand what's driving people's interest and 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 passion and 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 calls to action or, or taking action. So so now, how do you convert what you've learned into selling effectively in the marketplace? Right. So obviously, for selling, there's two different types of selling. There's there's digital based selling which means that you have to have the right um, um, site experiences to move people down the conversion funnel into the actual purchase. And then there's obviously person-to-person based selling. Again, the skill sets, I, I ran both big sales organizations. I've also run, uh, run organizations in e-commerce where the sale happens online. Um, what do you want me to talk about? E-commerce based selling or person-to-person selling? Um, we could we could take a look, I think, at the former first, although I personally would rather hear about the latter. But yep. I have a feeling I have a feeling that uh, the, the, the digital selling piece would have a broader impact and a broader benefit. OK, so digital selling. So number one is, again, you have to set up your conversion metrics in the right way such that you're always optimizing for the sale, meaning a lot of times people set up metrics to optimize for the next click. But oftentimes you could end up with a big group of people who are not necessarily at high volumes of people, but are but who are not qualified customers and qualified users, and that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. So all metrics have to be based on what the what the final ultimately likelihood to convert and purchase is, not just how they click to get to the next kind of level. That's very important. The second thing for conversion-based selling is just again, same thing as marketing. It's analytically driven, it's iterate, iterate, iterate play with every single thing that's possibly on that final landing page. It doesn't need to look pretty. That landing page could look god-awful ugly. It's all about what converts. If it's a red button, a green button, a purple button, I couldn't care less. Uh It just has to convert. And you test everything. You test the font size. You test the font. You test the verbiage. You test the color. You test every possible thing on every one of those pages. The next thing that's really important is as few different clicks to conversion, meaning you don't want to have four or five different clicks until you finally can purchase something online. Learn from Amazon. One-click shopping. Amazon uh-huh. pretty well for themselves, I would yep, say. Yep, they're doing so pretty the closer, well. The closer you get to that one-click shopping, the better. So that's also really important in terms of like driving sales kind of online. Other small things that I could point out, having user testimonials, having user ratings. Those things are, again, really important at the conversion level because – Right when someone's thinking about whether or not they want to put that credit card information in, you want them to see some good product product um, stars. You want them to see positive testimonials. That will help to push the person. Lastly, I would say is make sure that you have email capture as early as possible in the funnel. Because in the event that they that they leave the landing page, which, which abandon the landing page just happens like 50 plus percent time, you want to capture that email address regardless so that way you can remarket to that individual. Because... The best marketing that you will ever ever do, the highest ROI marketing, is always going to be remarketing to individuals who have come to the landing page Mm -hmm. and then then abandon because there's a much higher likelihood to purchase. So all those things are important in terms of digital-based selling. Going now to um, in-person selling, step number one um, is finding the right sales leader, right? You can hire lots of, you know, uh, you're running an organization. And yes, I could tell you what these key traits are in um, in selling, you know, listening skills and all the other kind of stuff that's obviously very important. Um, but you got to hire a head of sales, and that hired head of sales is going to end up hiring a number of different salespeople. But making sure you hire the absolute best head of sales out there um, that is again high level of integrity, 
that isn't just about closing deals, but closing smart deals mm-hmm. that actually drive profit, not just drive revenue. Um, people that are very experienced selling, that to me is the highest priority. The whole concept of, you know, from, um, from Jim Collins' first good, uh, from, uh, the book, Good to Great, um, the concept of first who, then what. Mm-hmm. First, get the right people on the bus and then decide what you're going to be doing. Got it. Um, and I think when you and when it comes to building a sales organization, start with the VP of sales or the chief revenue officer or whatever, and then build down from there. The other thing I would say is that a lot of times people think that the best salespeople are just these hyper aggressive people who just like bang down doors, who just, you know, maybe piss off people in the process. Um, sometimes you could be successful depending on what you're selling doing that. But I have personally found that the best salespeople are very well organized. Yep. They, um, are very, are, are willing to, um, do the dirty work and make significant number of calls and or emails to get things done 50, a hundred day, whatever it takes to be able to get that done. And to do that, you have to be very well organized and they're smart. So I think the typical stereotype of someone who's just this hyper aggressive, disorganized um, type type salesperson is maybe true if you're selling cars, um, but certainly isn't as true in kind of um, more established or more digital based companies. Got it. And I and I if I could add to that, I mean I know you talked about being a good listener, so this really does tie into that piece of it, the notion of being able to to let the prospect know very clearly what it is that you could do for them. You know, yeah. not just pitch your product, but why your product meets their need. And and the more you could tailor it, I was actually listening to I think it's Jeb Blount, 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 I think. I'm not sure, fanatic or fanatical um, marketing, I think is the name of the book. Uh, But he talks about that and how do you create your pitch in a way where you've done a little bit of market research, you understand what the potential ROI would be on the listener's end, because ultimately everybody wants to know, as you know, what's in it for me. Right. The the WIFM. That's exactly right. The best sales book that's out there, in my opinion, is um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Um, There's a lot of great principles in that book. Um, and it definitely starts with listening and asking smart questions. Um, if you want to be successful in actual a sales process, it is about, um, making it a conversation. It's not about a presentation. It's about a conversation. Mm-hmm. The best thing you could do in that conversation is to ask smart questions and learn as much as possible. Just like in negotiating, the best thing you can do is ask lots of questions. Um, and if you do that, you'll be a much more effective, um, seller. Agreed. Okay, so let's stay on the topic of effectiveness. I know I, I we I didn't mention this earlier. There was so much to unpack with your bio, so I had to leave a little bit for later. But you indicated in something that you shared with me that when you got to Investopedia, uh, you had to let a lot of your executive team go or at least revamp the executive team. So why was that? Without obviously getting into too much specifics, and um, and 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 when do you suggest? that new leaders coming in clean house, you know, like for example, if you think of a sports analogy, it's almost unheard of for a new NFL head coach to come in and use somebody else's assistant coaches brings in the whole new team. That's expected. It's not necessarily when I came in as head of school, it wasn't necessarily expected. It was discussed, but it wasn't necessarily expected. Um, So where do you think, that it's appropriate for the new leader to come in and clean house? And when do you think the new leader should really take advantage of existing talent and coalesce around it? Yeah. 
I think that the number one priority when a new leader joins an organization is to have the right team around him or her. Um, that's it. It's not actually to figure out the strategy. It's to build the right team. And that team, together with the leader, will figure out the strategy. Um, so the right time to clean house or to make changes, you need to clean house, maybe you don't, is as soon as possible. So the real question is, how do you determine whether or not you, you, you have the right team, whether this is the team that's going to take you to the to promised land? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a key question. It's not whether you should do in the beginning or the middle or later on. You got to do it in the beginning. You have to figure out whether you have the right team first and foremost. So that absolutely has to happen. Again, it goes to what I talked about first, who, then what. Figure out who's on the bus and then what you're going to do on the bus after you have the who. Um, in terms of determining that, listen, what I will tend to do is I will get lots of feedback from um, executives and I'll just ask them directly, who do you think are the strongest people on the team? I won't say who's weak. I won't ask who's weak, but I'll ask who are the strongest people on the team. And if the same names keep coming up as the strongest people on the team, okay, I will trust them because they worked with those executives for a long period of time. And that's that. And if we don't have to ask who's weak, actually, you can find out who's never mentioned that's strong. And chances are those first people are not as strong. Mm-hmm. Now, you mm-hmm. also obviously need to use your judgment and to, and to figure out um, your own perspective. But I tend to, believe it or not, put a lot more weight on colleagues' opinions of their colleagues. And I do it in a way that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable asking about who the superstars in the organization kind of thing um, than just my own half an hour or an hour with someone. If, someone, if people work with someone for one, two, three, four years, um, then they're going to know a lot more about the person. And, and if, there's a, if there's a theme to yep. four or five different people saying this person is a superstar, chances are they're a superstar. If I ask 15 different people who, who the superstars are and one person never gets mentioned that's in a prominent role, that tells me a lot also. Um, so what I would say is do it as quickly as possible um, and then be very transparent. Be extremely transparent and honest with that person and say, hey, I think we're going to need to make a switch. Um, you could either say, I think you should start looking for a job immediately and have them start looking for something while they're still working there. Or you could say, it's not going to work out. You know, here's, here's the transition plan. Um, I've done it both ways. Um, it depends on the circumstance of how one wants to do it. At the same time, I also spend a disproportionate amount of my time when I start jobs um, right in the beginning with um, reaching out to my network. I have, you know, a large network. I've been in the digital space for a very long time, for 20 plus years. I have like 15,000 people on my LinkedIn. Um, so I, I, if I have someone who is amazing in an open position or in a position that the current person's a B, I will not hesitate to replace a B with an A. It is not acceptable to have B players in the beginning. Got it. Okay. There was a ton in there. I'd love to be able to unpack it a little bit more. Um, But I do want to transition to my next question simply because I think it ties in nicely to a piece of what you talked about. And that's kind of like on the side of building the right team, but more importantly, in a way you talked earlier about an award. Well, you didn't mention the term award-winning, but I I know it was award-winning culture that you've built. So I'd like to know a little bit about how you did that and how did you create 
really an employee base that was deeply engaged, that was motivated. I've read some of your uh, LinkedIn testimonials and people who wrote about the kind of culture and team that you were able to create. That's fascinating to me. I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you've done that. Yeah, of course. Okay, so yeah, we won um, by Cranes as top 100 companies to work for in New York. We won um, a place called Business Intelligence Group as the best publisher to work for. So um, we bribe a lot of people, and then they vote us. Really <laughs> to work okay, us. yeah, I cast my that's vote. I think you're in. Um, so I think it all comes down to building what I believe is called a culture of transparency, a culture where um, you share the good, but also the bad and the ugly. You make sure that everyone in the company understands not just what you're doing, but also why you're doing it. You have a culture where there's no surprises. You have a culture where people can come into your office and disagree vehemently with the CEO. And not only won't there be a negative implication to it, but they'll be awarded and recognized for the fact that they're disagreeing with senior executives and the CEO and they have the confidence um, and, and, and desire and passion to be able to do so. We had five core values at Investopedia, and I'll tell you what those values were. And it really spoke to how we ended up building that type of culture that, that meant a lot to us. And we put a lot of skin in the game around those values. It wasn't just stuff on a, on a wall that doesn't mean anything, meaning it affected compensation, it affected promotions, um, it affected a lot for people. So those five values spell out the word scope. And when people came into office their first day, there was a scope bottle on their desk, and it wasn't because they had you know bad breath or anything, God forbid. Um, Scope stands for the following. S is for selflessness. People, the most selfish thing that you could do as an employee is to be selfless. We said you could help out yourself more than you could help out yourself in any other way by helping out other people. And if you are selfless, it will be most recognized. And that was selflessness. C is for celebrating. It's very easy to get caught up in challenges. It's very easy to wait for big wins, but celebrate small wins. We had, you know, the their beer kegs in the office and all the other fun things to be able to celebrate within the office. Um, celebrating is a really important part of culture, um, especially younger people, millennials, etc. They they look to work as a social and community based environment. So being able to have celebrations is very important to me and very important to really retaining employees. O is for over communicating, meaning it's not good enough just to communicate. Everyone has to hear the same things multiple times over and over again. What, what you say, you want to document, you want to share that documents with lots of people to build alignment, et cetera. Um, S-C-O-P is for planning. Thank you. Give me a P. The reason why P is important is because if you're a um, more of a smaller company, you have a little bit of a ready, fire, aim mentality. And we need to transition to being more thoughtful and planning oriented than just kind of operating by the seat of our pants. And E, possibly the most important one, building a great culture that we did, which is empowering our employees and really pushing decision-making down and saying, I'm the CEO, I'm at the bottom of the org chart. It's a reverse org chart. My job is to enable the, the smart decisions by everyone else. And then the only decisions I have to make is who to have on the bus. Mm. And then who else can make those smart decisions? And we empower the people who are closest to actually what's happening to make those decisions. We'll ask lots of questions, but we empower them to make the right decisions. That's great. I love it. And I love the way that you make it so easy to remember, both in go. terms of a word we know yep. as a, and, and also 
the mouthwash. I thought that was great. I'm almost <laughs> waiting for you to go ahead and put a, like a submarine on somebody's thing and have this scope coming up there and check yeah, it out. I that's even really, scope had a scope. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Excellent. Listerine, Listerine was just too many letters. So oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. So we're not going to go there. And besides, scope is much better than Listerine. We all know that. But I don't get I don't get paid to say that. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to transition now to I, our. I see a new advertiser opportunity for you. Yeah. See, I'm picking up. I'm picking up on it. It's so interesting because, you know, I transitioned out of school leadership into educational, I'm sorry, into executive coaching. And I just thought that I would bring my coaching self to the to the marketplace, not realizing that I actually had to learn a whole boatload of new skills, including marketing and selling and, and, and whatnot. So every time I have conversation with smart people like you, I pick up a couple of nuggets and I do appreciate awesome. it. Sure. So let's let's get into our rapid fire segment, have yeah. a little bit of additional fun before we wrap things up. D- uh, David, your favorite hobby. Favorite hobby. Traveling. I've been to now 51 countries. Really? So we're trying to get to 50 states and we have a, 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 a shot glass for each one of them. We've got a few to go still, but that sounds awesome. awesome. A, stre- a stress releaser for those occasional stressful moments. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm obsessed with working out. Uh, I just ran my first two triathlons. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Swimming is my favorite. I, I absolutely love it. Medita- it's meditative, frankly. Swimming is meditative um, and uh, best stress reliever out there. And it's good for you, too. Much better than, you know, drinking, I would say. Okay, good. I'll, I'll keep I'll keep tabs on that one. Shower, morning or evening? Oh, I'm way a morning shower. If morning. I don't shower in the morning, I'm Oscar the Grouch. It's terrible. I hear that. All right. And finally, since we, we've actually touched on this, so you could, you could say see above, but best leadership book or video that you have read or watched? Wow. Okay. I've got to say, I did, I'll just say the two that I mentioned already, which was How to Win Friends and Influence People. I loved. Um, the other book um, that I'm a real believer in is The Lean Startup. Um, Good to Great by Jim Collins was also mentioned. Absolutely love that book. And in terms of just a fun book about, about entrepreneurship and leadership, um, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight and Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. I actually teach at Columbia um, as a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship. And all of those books, for the most part, and, and The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, are required readings in my in my syllabus. So got it. You know, okay. Like them if so I that makes it me up. feel better that you know all those books by heart and I don't. So now at least it's on your syllabus. I feel a little bit better about that. So Absolutely. is there anything you want to tell Lee to succeed that you haven't already shared about yourself, about how people can connect with you, learn from you, uh, anything of the of that nature? Okay. I mean, let's talk about just leadership for a second. I would say I talk about the concept of nice aggressiveness quite a bit. Meaning, the best leaders are people who are not aggressive, excuse the word assholes, I don't know if we can say that, aggressive, not nice people. They're also not just nice people that can't get things done. Um, you, by, there is a path to being a good person, by being a mensch, by being a nice person, uh-huh. and succeeding in business. You do not need to be a a-hole to end up succeeding in business. I think that nice guys do not have to finish last. They can finish first. And don't sacrifice integrity and don't sacrifice doing things respectfully and being doing it in the right way um, just because you think that's the way that CEOs or leaders are supposed to act. They're not and they shouldn't. Very powerful. You know, it's so interesting because I'm thinking now about leadership in the three eyes. You start from your integrity, then you have the capacity to influence, and eventually you make impact. 
I like because it. through that, so I, I need to develop it more. I'm actually literally working on a blog post as we're, you know, before and after recording here, because I really want to develop this idea. And I've heard that so much from you in the conversation yeah. you talk about, and you live a life of integrity and that's created the influence, the awards, the, the, all the talk people have around what you do. It's clear that you're influential. And of course, the biggest factor, as we read in the bio uh, initially is the massive impact that you've had. And it's really been uh, a fantastic opportunity opportunity for me and a true pleasure to get to know you better, to talk with you and to pick your brain on these fascinating pieces. So really, we don't have a lot of time left at all, but give us, if you can, one, unless you really feel that that was the one already. So I'll, I'll give you that out if you need it. One final life lesson. Yeah, um, I'll give you another uh, lesson. Sure. You know, life is short. Um, make sure that you're not overly obsessed with work. That's it. You know, family, children or whatever. Um, it doesn't have to be family and children. It can be whatever one's passion is, but just make sure that um, you don't delve too deep into um, a myopic approach to one's life. Um, a balanced life is a lot more of an effective life. There's been lots of studies on people who work 60, 70 hours aren't necessarily more productive than people who work 40, 45 hours. And um, again, figure out how to be extremely time efficient. Use that time in ways that are not just about work. That's my life lesson and advice. Awesome. It was really great talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on Lead to Succeed. Yeah. It's been great. Have a wonderful day. Thanks I so much. It as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to head over to impactfulcoaching.com where you can sign up for our blog, download free leadership eBooks, and so much more. 